Good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. I enjoyed um, every part of our service so far. And uh, I hope this last part will be beneficial to you also. The last time I preached, uh, we were studying uh, the, the gospel of, uh, not the gospel, the letter of 1 John. We studied 1 John 1 through 2, verse 2. And we talked about the fact that God is light. He is unchangeable perfection. If we come to that light, we will find cleansing. He is what we need. Now, here's a little secret. In that passage that we studied, there was one verse that is a kind of a theological landmine. And as I was studying that passage, I was thinking, do, do we want to talk about that? Do I want to talk about it? Do I not want to? And I thought I was going to, and I decided, no, I'm not going to. And so we kind of skirted around it because I was afraid we'd step on it and blow up. But today, uh, we're going to look at it more closely and hopefully uh, carefully, but I won't make any promises. Uh, here's the verse that I'm referring to. It's in 1 John 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. Good so far. Beautiful verse. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now we've got a problem. Because the whole world isn't going to heaven. You may have noticed that. Have you ever read this verse and wondered, you know, well, what's it saying? The whole world's not going to heaven. How can it be the propitiation for not just our sins, but for the sins of the whole world? Well, we could just ignore the, the, the problem here and move on, but I don't think that's really a, a good habit to get into. I think we should try to understand what we're reading. Now, sometimes we, we will just have to kind of give up and say, I don't understand everything, but let's take a look at 1 John 2, 2 and, and, and try to try to understand this verse this morning. There are two basic theories, and they are greatly divided. And it's not just for 1 John 2, verse 2, but also for a bunch of other verses. The first is that Jesus on the cross provided a, a potential salvation for everybody. He provided a gift for everybody. That is called unlimited atonement. And while we Mennonites don't generally know what, it, what the term for that is, that's basically what we believe about what Jesus did on the cross. The other theory is that Jesus didn't really die to save everyone, but um, he only died to save certain people. And this, believe it or not, goes by the term Limited atonement. Okay, so unlimited and limited. And limited is the L in, if you're familiar with the acronym TULIP, limited atonement is the L in the TULIP. And it's probably the least favorite pedal. I think I'd be safe in saying uh, if moderate Calvinists would not accept this pedal of the TULIP if they are a four-point Calvinist. So we're going to look at these two arguments this morning and just kind of skim the surface and uh, hopefully not get too confused, which I can easily get confused about these things in general. You know, I think um, theology is a little bit like broccoli. Some people love it, 
Some people will hate it. But when the broccoli bowl comes around, everybody ought to take a little. And uh, I hope we'll get back to steak and potatoes soon. But um, this morning is broccoli morning. There, there are two reasons why I think this is worth studying. One of them is that uh, you are going to, some of you are going to encounter this teaching, maybe whether you recognize it or not. But this teaching's out there. It's very accessible now, maybe more than ever. It's common. Um, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur. Uh, these are guys I respect very much. I'm not saying don't listen to them, uh, but they all preach limited atonement, and I want you to have some idea of where they're coming from. And I don't want, you know, it'd be too bad if the first time you hear about limited atonement is always from the other side of the argument. Uh, the second reason why I think we should talk about it is because it does kind of touch on the nature of God. I think it does. Um, does he really want all those sinners out there to be saved? Or does he just kind of, you know, it'd be nice, but it's, you know, he doesn't really love them any more than, than you know, he sends the rain in their direction also. He sends the rain in, in our direction. He doesn't really love them enough to save them. How much does he love them? It, it kind of it, it touches on God's nature, and I don't think many things are more important to study than what is God like. So this, I want to try to summarize the two viewpoints this morning. It will not be complete, um, partly because we don't have enough time, and partly because I don't understand everything about about um, I don't have it all covered or put together, and a lot of what I'll be sharing is you know. Sh- collected from other sources. I didn't come up with all these ideas on my own. So this is not attempting to be kind of the word on this issue, the last word on this issue. It it will not be, but it does present both cases and kind of summarizes them. There's some... The doctrine of limited atonement goes by some other names too, just in case you run into them. Other names would be definite atonement, particular redemption, or intentional atonement. Here's how John MacArthur talks about it. He says, God did not intend to save everyone. He is God. He could have intended to save everyone. He could have saved everyone, and he would have if that had been his intention. The atonement is limited. So here's the key question. What did God intend to do when he sent his son to die on the cross? Did he intend to only save certain people, the elect? The elect is a, is a, a fancy word for, for the folks that get to go to heaven. Did he intend to only save the elect? Or did he intend to provide a gift available to everyone who gets to choose? That's unlimited atonement. Well, Here's how we're going to do this, and I hope um, I don't lose you, because this would be an easy easy one to get lost on. Uh, but first, we're going to look at some verses that are used to support the doctrine of limited atonement. And, and when I was studying this morning, I saw it dawned on me, I really need a PowerPoint, and uh, didn't have time to come up with that, so that's why I have this up here on the board. Verses on the left support limited atonement. Verses on the, on the right 
um, support unlimited atonement. And um, first we'll go through the verses that would be used to present the case of limited atonement. And I will try to present their viewpoint. I'm not pretending to be completely fair up here. I'm just trying to explain uh, how, how, the, how the reasoning goes. And then after I presented um, the argument in favor of limited atonement, we'll go back over those verses and try to see how they don't necessarily have to support limited atonement. And then after we've gone through those verses on the left twice, we'll go through the verses on the right once. And they will, um, hopefully, you will see that limited, unlimited atonement, uh, there's a strong case to be made for that. So there, there are kind of three, three main arguments that I'll cover this morning that have to do with unlimited, I'm sorry, limited atonement. And the first set of verses have to do with the word world. You ever realize the word world is such an important word, the way it's used in the Bible? A lot of fights just over that word. Uh, in each of the verses that, I, that I'm going to read here that have to do with the word world, those that believe in limited atonement will argue that since the whole world is not going to heaven, we agree with them about that, then the word world must mean something other than every individual person in the world, and instead must mean not just Jews, but also Gentiles, something like that. It's just kind of a broad term to mean salvation is inclusive to people from all over the world. Okay? So they would say that the person using the word is emphasizing that salvation is not just for Jews, not just for the Jewish race. Okay? So let's, let's look at John one twenty nine. John 1.29. And, uh, you know, one of the funny things about this debate is that there are some verses that are used by both sides to support their argument. They'll both point to exactly the same verse and say, see, it is so obvious that our side is right. John 1.29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. This is John the Baptist. And said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here's how this verse would seem to support limited atonement. Did Jesus take away the sins of everyone in the world? How could he? If so, if you think he took away everyone's sins, then you must think that everyone is going to heaven. Now, there are some people that actually do think something close to that, but we're not going there. If you don't think everyone is going to heaven, then the Lamb of God's mission must not have been to save everyone from their sins, but only for certain people out of the world. <clears throat> so world doesn't mean, must mean in this case, not only Jews, but also Gentiles, emphasizing that Jesus died to save people from all over the world. Do you follow that argument? I mean... You kind of see what they're, where they're coming from. I hope you can, because this, you know, they're going to repeat this argument about 80 times, approximately. 1 John 4:14. 4, 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son 
to be the Savior of the world. There's a couple other uh, verses that are very similar to this that we won't look up, but they are John 12, 47 and John 4, 42. Again, those who argue for limited atonement would say, did Jesus save everyone? Doesn't look like it. How can he be the Savior of people he didn't save? Pretty good argument, I'd say. The Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Okay? How about John 6, 33? Okay, we're arguing the case for limited atonement. We're going to go back over these verses. John 6, 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Does every individual in the world get life from this bread that was sent from heaven? If not, if not everyone received eternal life, then the word world must not mean everyone. It must mean something more general, like not only Jews, but also Gentiles. Okay? Almost done with the world verses. The last one is 1 John 2.2. 2. We already read this one. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And they would say propitiation is a very strong term that refers to the actual removal of sins and not the potential anything. Has everyone's sins been removed? If, no, if not, then he can't be the propitiation for every individual in the world. He must be the propitiation for just certain people out of the world. All right? So that's, that's the verses that have to do with the word world. And that's the first argument, that um, those verses that say Jesus died for the world can't mean everyone in the world. Now, I disagree with that, but we'll go back to those verses after we go through their next two arguments. The second major argument is that um, has to do with the word many. There are a few verses that say Jesus died to save many. Uh, these verses are Matthew 20, 28, Matthew 26, 28, and Hebrews 9, 28. It's kind of a funny coincidence that they all end with 28. Actually, there's one in Mark too that I don't have down here, but it's a parallel with Matthew 20, 28. And I'm just going to read one of these. Matthew 20, 28 says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay? One of the few verses that talk about Jesus being a ransom. It's a beautiful verse. Too bad we have to argue about it. Calvinists will say, look, Jesus died to save many, not everyone. If the writer meant everyone, then why didn't he say so? He should have said everyone. It's a fair question. All right, and then there's finally, we've got a couple verses that have to do with what actually happened on the cross. And now I've heard some kind of variation among different Calvinist teachers about how they talk about this, but I, I think I can accurately sum it up as saying that they would say that Jesus actually saved people on the cross. He actually saved certain people. He secured their redemption when he died on the cross. And if, this, and if they are right, then Jesus couldn't have died to save everyone because everyone would be saved. 
Hebrews 9.12 is a verse they would use to argue that Jesus actually got the job completely done on the cross. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He secured an eternal redemption. So they would say he didn't just get the possibility of an eternal redemption. He actually got it. That, that's not a really good verse for their, for their argument, but yeah, getting ahead of myself. 2 Corinthians 5.19. Now this is a tricky one. And I, I don't claim to understand this one completely. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And so they would say, while on the cross... God was reconciling people to himself. He's not talking about potential whatever. Sins were actually being removed on the cross. He wasn't counting their trespasses against them. It was a complete reconciliation. And so in that verse, the word world must mean not only Jews, but also Gentiles. Not every individual in the world. Okay. So we've looked at... um, We've, we've run through those verses on the left once. We've kind of seen the case for limited atonement. I hope you're still with me. Um, I haven't presented everything that could go on the left-hand side there. This is just, you know, I think a fair representation of, of um, that case. And I want you to get an idea of why people think this way. They're not just making stuff up, all right? It can be a real shocker to realize that, hey, these guys aren't just making stuff up and they're not crazy, all right? We have to kind of accept that idea. They're not crazy. They're not making stuff up. Now let's go back over these, these um, arguments and these verses and see if there is a different way of looking at them. See, I think the word going back to the one that says world does not mean everyone I think world does have a fairly simple meaning, and I think it means everybody who inhabits the earth and the inhabitants of the earth, which would happen to be everyone. Now, I could be wrong. It's possible that in a few of the verses that use the word world, it's possible that the writer does mean to say not only Jews, but also Gentiles. But a very natural meaning of the word world is everyone in the world. And it's hard to imagine that in all of those cases that um, it never means what I think is its most natural meaning, everyone in the world. And most of those verses, another thing I want you to notice, is most of those verses come from John, the Gospel John or the letter written by John which would have been written from somewhere between AD 85 to AD 95, is the most popular theory. If he wrote then, and the way he was using the word world was to emphasize that salvation is not just for the Jews, it would kind of seem like maybe an odd point in history to make such a big deal out of it, because probably by then there were more Gentile Christians than there were Jewish Christians. Kind of following what I'm saying there, uh, this is not a major argument of mine. I'm just kind of pointed out that it would be a little bit odd 
for, for John to be always using the word world to mean not only Jews, but also Gentiles. Because by that point, it was pretty obvious that it wasn't just for the Jews. Okay, so let's go back over these verses. John 1, 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, takes away is kind of the key word there, phrase. That is one word. It, um, it can also be translated, the Greek word can also be translated into carry or bear. And so what, what I think John the Baptist is saying is that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who is going to bear the sin of the world to the extent that he is going to suffer on behalf of the whole world. Now I want you to notice that it doesn't actually even say sins, plural. It says sin. It's a singular word there. The sin of the world. And to me, that emphasizes the collective sin problem that Jesus came to deal with. And so what, what I think John the Baptist is doing is almost paraphrasing Isaiah 53, 6, which says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's, it's a really neat verse. I, I hope we don't miss the beauty of it by just analyzing it from a theological standpoint. 1 John 4.14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Did Jesus accomplish His mission to be the Savior of the world? Can He be the Savior of people He didn't save? Well, I think, yes, He can be. He is the source of salvation for everyone, whether they believe in Him or not, just like you know, the bronze serpent was lifted up. In, in the Israelite camp. And I, I, I'm betting there were Israelites who didn't believe and scoffed at the idea of going out and looking at the bronze serpent. That was their choice. But that was still their source of salvation. Can Jesus be the Savior of people He didn't save? Well, we'll come back to that question later. All right? John 6.33 For the bread of God is He who come, comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, just, just in case you've kind of lost where I'm at in my outline here, we're going through the verses on the left-hand column and kind of looking at them again and seeing, do they have to support the argument of, of limited atonement? And I'm trying to say no. John 6.33, For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Well, Jesus kind of repeats Himself a few verses later. 20 verses later in John 6:51, And there he uses slightly different wording, which I think can help us understand this. In John 6:51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, not everyone's going to eat of this bread. He says that. But he is giving it for the life of the world. So to me, it's just Jesus saying he is offering a gift for the life of the world. Some people are going to eat it. Some people are not. 1 John 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, the word propitiation is unusual in the New Testament. It only occurs twice. It's actually 
um, occurs quite a bit in the Old Testament and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was called the Septuagint, there is exactly the same word that is translated here as propitiation. And so in the Old Testament, that word was used in reference to the Old Testament sacrifices of atonement, such as in Numbers 5.8. So to me, the word propitiation means Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. In fact, some translations, actually the NIV, I think for one, will say he is the atoning sacrifice for the whole world. Jesus is the sacrifice that reconciles those who believe. So, and I don't have a problem with saying that. To me, it's, it's much simpler to think in terms of Jesus being the atoning sacrifice for the whole world. Now, while we're at it, we should also notice that there's one other time in 1 John, or maybe in all of John's writings. Now I'm not sure. Was it just 1 John? There's one other time, at least in 1 John, that John uses the expression whole world. He says world multiple times, but only whole world twice. Once here, and also over in 1 John 5.19. So it might be interesting to see what the context is of that one. In 1 John 5.19, he says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, in that context, I think he's saying, we're from God, but every, everybody else, and I don't think he's just saying not only Jews, but also Gentiles. He's saying everybody else, every individual in the world is under the power of the evil one. So to me, he's using, the way he uses it over in 1 John five nineteen suggests to me that he's talking about individuals also in 1 John 2, verse 2. All right. And then finally, um, not quite finally, Matthew 20, 28. What about these verses that say Jesus died for many? Does that mean Jesus didn't die for everyone? The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, if what Jesus did on the cross was only talked about in terms of many, I would give in. You're right. It's just many. It's not everyone. But there are other verses that, that do talk about it being done for everyone. And we'll look at those soon. But here's the key. Many doesn't have to mean less than all. It can mean all. Uh, David Hunt, who is a defender of, of um, well, attacks the idea of limited atonement. In Daniel 12, 12, verse 2, he uses this as an example. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Does many mean just some of them? No, he really means everybody. He's just using the word many to say a whole lot of people. Okay, what about these couple verses that say Jesus really saved people on the cross? No potential salvation, actual salvation. Hebrews 9.12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is a pretty easy one to, um, to get around. He, to me, he says he secured the gift of eternal redemption. He secured a gift. The only way he could have gotten that, that gift was by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. He, he secured a gift 
of eternal redemption, which is offered to all. It, the verse doesn't talk about him securing it for certain individuals. 2 Corinthians 5.19, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. I do not pretend to understand all the implications of this verse, but to me there are a few things that it says or that, well, the sacrifice brings reconciliation, and it's a sacrifice that was performed on the cross, and God did it for you. He had you in mind on the cross while Christ was doing this. To me, this verse says God did his part to tear down the barrier that separated us from God. Now, it might sound like God took care of the whole business of reconciliation all on his own, but we can see that he didn't because in the next verse, it says in verse 20, 2 Corinthians 5.20, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So there is still something left to be done on our part. All right. Well, if you're still with me, congratulations. We're not done yet. We're going to look at the right-hand verses that support the idea of unlimited atonement. We've kind of played defense up till now, but you know in theology the best defense is good offense. So let's see if we can poke some holes in the theory of limited atonement and support the idea of unlimited atonement. And again, this isn't the whole set of verses on the right side either. Hebrews 2, verse 9. That's a good place to start. Hebrews 2, 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus tasted death. He died for everyone. Now, it doesn't say why in this verse, but here's an idea. What if he loved them? It's a wild theory. If the limited atonement model is right, then the fact that Jesus tasted death for everyone is kind of bad news for most people because for them, for most people, the only possible outcome, and this kind of goes into the other points of TULIP, but for most people, the only possible outcome is still greater condemnation for rejecting an offer they could not accept. So for most people, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross wasn't really an act of love. And some consistent Calvinists will say, yeah, God doesn't really love everyone the same way. 1 Corinthians 8.11. Okay. Here's Paul warning the Corinthians to be careful. Be careful. Don't offend anybody because you offer, you uh, not offered meat, you ate meat offered to idols. Be careful how you do that, how you eat that meat because you can... Uh, well, let me read this. 1 Corinthians 8.11 says, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. That's pretty destructive. Destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. So Paul is introducing a scenario in which someone was once saved, but loses his salvation. He is destroyed spiritually. Now, if that is what Paul is saying, the discussion is kind of over because um, limited atonement wouldn't really make much sense. 
because it's, it's, its argument is that Jesus died to save certain people and the elect, the people who are going to heaven. So if he died to save somebody who ends up not going to heaven, that kind of breaks the argument. Now clearly he died to save this brother who's being talked about because he was saved, but now he's spiritually destroyed. Now, uh, Albert Barnes, he, he's a, a Calvinist commentator, wrote back in the 1700s, 1800s, I don't remember. But he says, Paul is speaking hypothetically here, He's not really saying that uh, this is going to happen. He's just kind of saying, hypothetically, you know, this could be bad. This could be a problem. Hypothetically, well, and I, and I think part of the reason why he, he made that argument is because in some of the older translations, they, they pose it as a question. But, uh, you know, I wonder, how would the folks at Corinth have, have felt? What would they have responded with if they had known that you couldn't lose your salvation? You know, <laughs> Nice try, Paul. You're going to have to come up with some other reason because nobody around here is going to lose their salvation because I ate meat offered to idols. That's not a very good argument. I'm going to call your bluff on that one. Hebrews 10, 28 and 29. This is a similar argument as, as the previous one. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. But how much, worse pun how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the, the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Okay, so it's talking about someone who was sanctified. All right, I would think that is a person who is saved. And if the writer is saying that someone who is once saved tramples uh, the, the blood of the covenant, and has fallen away, then, um, you know, it goes back to the same argument as before. Christ died for someone who was saved and then lost his salvation. So he did die to save him, but he didn't go to heaven. So that would sound like unlimited atonement, not limited atonement. Now, John MacArthur will say that this verse actually isn't talking about someone who was saved. The phrase, he was sanctified, is talking about Jesus. It's not talking about someone who was, who was once a Christian. He's saying he was sanctified. It's talking about Jesus. Now, there's, there's, a couple pro, there's a couple major problems with that argument. One is that just a few verses earlier, in verse 22, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the effect of the blood on the saints. So he's kind of already set the context. He's talking about what the blood does for the saints, for the Christians. So it'd be Kind of strange for him to just subtly flip context and be talking about Jesus being sanctified by his blood. Also, there's no other place in the New Testament that, that uses an expression like this, or quite like this, that talks about Jesus being sanctified through his blood. About 99.99% of the time that it talks about people being sanctified, it's talking about believers being sanctified. There is one verse where Jesus talks about himself being sanctified, and that is in uh, John 17, 19. He talks about sanctifying himself, but he doesn't talk about sanctifying himself through his blood. So what I'm saying is that that would be an unusual expression, and it doesn't fit the context of, of what the writer of Hebrews is saying, in my opinion. All right, how about 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 6? 
Here are some verses that talk about the nature of God more, and I, I think these are really special. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, all right, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people, same group of people we were praying for, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, not many, all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So God wants us to pray for all people, I don't think he's just saying not only Jews, but also Gentiles. He's saying everybody. And I don't think he's saying just pray for the elect. He's saying pray for everybody. So that same group of people that we're supposed to pray for, he wants them to be saved. And by the way, he also gave Jesus as a ransom for the same all. It's very hard to break that chain of alls and say at some point, that's just talking about some people. He wants all people to be saved. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, if you look at that verse closely, you might see, oh, they have an easy way out with this one. Um, Those that would argue in favor of limited atonement have an easy way out because they might say, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting any one of you to perish. But the problem is Peter is already talking to a group of people who are Christians who have like, like precious faith is how he started that, that book, if I remember right. And um, so wouldn't they already have, you know, is God worried about them perishing? Wouldn't they have already come to repentance? He is not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I think Peter's just saying God is patient with you, just as he is patient with everyone and wants them all to be saved. 2 Peter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Okay, so these guys are not Christians. Just make that clear. They're bad guys. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. He bought them. And they're fighting against them. This is a reality we see today. Jesus suffered and died for them. 1 Timothy 4.10. Now, there was a question that I asked in, in the, when we were going through that first ver- list of verses. How can Jesus be the Savior of people He didn't save? Well, 1 Timothy 4.10 answers that question. Fortunately, I don't have to come up with my own answer. Here's 1 Timothy 4.10. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. 
So there's kind of two groups of people being talked about there. There's those who believe, and he's especially their Savior, because they are going to go to heaven. He, he will save those. But there's a sense in which he is a Savior of those who do not believe. He is still their Savior. He's their source of salvation. First John 3.16 through verse 18 here. This argument is not original with me. Well, most of these aren't, okay? This, but I think this is especially a neat one. 1 John three sixteen through 18, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So it's saying, if you have the kind of love that God has, you're not just going to say nice things to people and then just kind of let them on their own and not lift a finger to help them. If you have the kind of love that God has, you're going to help these people if you can. It's a characteristic of God's love that he does what he can for the people that he loves. Does God love everyone? I think so. I mean, what, did, what, do, what do we see in Jesus? I mean, just read the Gospels. Weeping over Jerusalem on the cross. Father, forgive them. Um, I'm trying to think of some other examples. The rich young ruler, he loved him, even though he decided not to follow Jesus. He went his own way but he still loved him. If there was ever a guy who would help me, if he could, it would be Jesus. Now, God could be completely just and righteous without doing anything to save us, without providing us with salvation. But that is not his nature. That is not just his nature to be just. It's his nature to, to love us. And the characteristic of his nature is to help those he loves. If God would refuse to help someone that he could help, how would that fit with his nature? So in conclusion, next time I promise a shorter sermon. What have we learned from 1 John 2, verse 2? Well, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We have an atoning sacrifice. It's a perfect pardon already made by Jesus Christ, the righteous. What he did on the cross, he did for everyone. And for us, this means that God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. Uh, this is the ultimate assurance that God is on our side and he is for us. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And that's what it means for us but has a lot, of, um, a lot of great ramifications for everybody else. God really loves the lost. Uh, it goes back to what we were talking about Wednesday night. You know, God loves those people. We can say with confidence, we can think with confidence, you know, that person, Jesus died for that sinner. He is that person's Savior. Even if that person doesn't recognize it, even if that person is rejecting Jesus, even if that person has never heard about Jesus, 
He is still their Savior, that person's Savior. Everybody ought to know. Last verse, I'll just close with this. 1 John 4.10 And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God bless you.